Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hai. In this fifth season, I'll be exploring how we can change the ways in which we relate to and structure our existing systems so that we can build towards a more resilient future. From alternative economic models and business practices to our role in and perception of the more than human world, this season will explore how we might design ways of living that both enrich and sustain all forms of life, not just our own. For more information, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with Betsy Reed, an author, speaker, and award-winning director of Innovative Behaviour Change Approaches, whose work explores social and environmental issues. Having focused on social justice, racial equity, LGBTQI+, and the environment for nearly 30 years, Betsy's path started early when, at the tender age of 10, she volunteered for local political campaigns and community organising in her native Wyoming. With advanced degrees in politics, Betsy has worked internationally with collaborators around Europe, the UK, the US, Africa and Asia, creating and directing high-profile national campaigns on issues like fair trade, food waste and packaging. She's led sustainability public affairs work for the world's biggest food company and worked as an independent consultant, advising executives in the food, tech and fashion industries on sustainability strategy, risk and internal and external engagement. Her first book, Communicating Social and Environmental Issues Effectively came out in July 2020 with Emerald Publishing and in conjunction with the UK's PRCA, the largest PR association in Europe. In this conversation, we talked about everything from yoga and sustainability to communication and having a discomfort practice. I hope you enjoy the show. Betsy, my fellow Barcelona lady, how are you doing today? Thanks for being in conversation. Uh, thank you for having me. Today I am cold. It is January <laughs> and that means it's the three weeks of winter we get here in Barcelona and I'm sitting in my storeroom on my cold tile floor Ouch. trying to feel not whiny because that's not why we moved to Barcelona for the cold, <laughs> but I am otherwise very well. <laughs> Thanks. I am glad to hear it. So you've had a really rich and fascinating career in all manner of respects and I'm intrigued to ask What led you to work in the field of social justice, racial equality, LGBTQI plus and the environment? Mm. It's something that I have always cared about and knew I wanted to work in. And so being a sort of mm, determined person, shall we say, (laughs) my ex-husband called me someone who has a bias toward action. I think it was bias toward (laughs) action. Yeah, that's what he said. I've always been really committed to getting things done. And I grew up in a very religious household in the U.S., and that gave me a real sense of living my life for something bigger than just myself. And that, Mm. of course, led me into thinking, what are my values? And that has always been around other people and just making sure that the world is a nicer place for people who don't have the privilege that I do. And of course, as a probably then 10-year-old, I didn't say it quite like that because privilege <laughs> has become you know, quite a topic of conversation mm. more recently. But I always just had this sense of, I guess, obligation to give my life to something bigger. And that led me into educational choices and life choices and career choices that have always focused on equality. And that led me into some interesting, not lay-bys, but sort of I got into more environmental work and it's just not where my passion lies. And it is all related, but I'm now, 2020 has been a great way of refocusing, a great time to refocus and really pulling it back to my passion, which is those issues you named and really focusing on humans in everything I do. Mm. From your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Oh, I love this question, Natalie, (laughs) the global human psyche. Well, because I'm an expert on all humans, from my perspective, and I've talked about this in my own podcast, which you might have listened to a couple of solo episodes, is talking about our collective shadow side. And I think 
the pandemic was really the pressure that squeezed out a lot of things that have happened under the surface for a very long time in political systems and culture and society, and now has brought to light some of the things that maybe we haven't dealt with collectively. Things like injustice, racism, misogyny, oppression of other people who aren't like us, or just oppression that happens as a result of systems. And those of us, I include myself in this, who have had great privilege often just don't have to face um, what those systems that benefit us do to others. So I'm talking about, you know, social injustice or supply chains that squash farmers in the developing world to give us the products that we don't even think about. Mm. And I also think just from personal experience, observation, and just the circles I circulate in, I think a lot of people are a lot more awake to what's going on in the world. And just in general, people are looking, people are more conscious. And I think both of those are very positive things, but they're also very difficult things, mm. individually and collectively. Um, yeah, I think we're at a real turning point mm. as humanity. We either step forward, progress, and stop doing horrific things to each other now that we know we do them, or we go back into comfort zones and denial and living with systems that haven't really worked for about 98% of humanity. And I, siding on the side of optimism, think that we are going to break down some systems that haven't worked for us. We are going to change our lives individually, collectively. Again, I'm getting a lot of people coming to me asking me how to have a career and a life mm. like I have. And I don't say that as a point of pride. I say that as like, oh my gosh, it's so wonderful to be asked that because people want to live in alignment with their values and actually are starting to think, what are my values? How do I want to work? Who do I want to work for? And also, you know, what impact do I want to have? What's the point of this life I've got? Mm. I think that question, what's the point of this life I've got, there, there seems to be for many people, and whatever the resulting outcome is, but there seems to be for many people, who am I? What matters? Mm. What does my life matter? And I think you see so many different responses to that and trying to seek answer. So whether that's trying to fortify yourself against discomfort or pain, which we all do in all sorts of different ways, and whether that's uh, that comes out in a more of a dogmatic approach of wedding ourselves more firmly to the systems that we already identify with. You know, I'm thinking um, ideological systems, but also financial systems, etc., which are very tricky to get out of. I mean, it's all well and good me spouting yeah. it here, but, you know, I make yeah. money, I have to pay my bills. So, you know, these, these are very difficult, complex, intractable questions in some way. And then on the flip side of that, this really kind of more revolutionary thought, which is what might something completely different look like? What might I be like if I no longer had to live my life with certain priorities to pay the bills or to mm -hmm. earn the biggest house or whatever it might be? And I wonder in terms of where you are, and you, you mentioned earlier the sense of shadow sides and delving into that, where you are in your journey, do you think that people are getting more comfortable with discomfort? Oh, this is my favorite question, Natalie, but you do that because you've done your research. I don't know if generally they are, but I do know that the people who come to my very uncomfortable yoga classes or who hire me to make them uncomfortable and then help them find solutions to sustainability issues, so the answer is yes on that. They are. They are seeking to be uncomfortable. But I, I would like to think it's a zeitgeist thing. I'm not sure if this is widespread but I think it's now inevitable and I've said this in previous podcasts conversations other things which is that it's kind of no longer an option our hand has been forced and people who aren't sitting with discomfort are still going to face deep deep discomfort as systems do break down and speaking from a personal perspective 2020 was deeply uncomfortable. All of my work stopped. But skipping forward to some of the learnings, what I gained from that was really beautiful. And it was, and, and still being challenged to redefine my definition of success mm. and being uncomfortable with being actually quite contented, mm -hmm. not making much money this last year, not having goals anymore, to be honest. <laughs> I don't have a list of things. And letting go of the idea that that represented success or being responsible as an adult, um, you know, with a couple of degrees and a, a life path. Um, and I think it taught me to really, it's still teaching me, 
to sit with discomfort, but it also taught me a lot about who I truly am. And I've said this a few times lately, because I'm still getting my head around it, of just being a deeply creative person and letting my life revolve around that instead of my life direction or my career or my, you know, my qualifications or whatever, but just being like, who am I as a creative? doesn't even matter. What matters is that I am feeding my creativity and seeing what comes of it. Mm. So in a lot of ways, I'm doing the same things I was doing before in terms of output to the world, but I'm doing them from a different starting place. I'm not doing them because it's part of a plan. I'm doing it because that's what lights me up. Mm. It's really interesting what you described there in terms of the things that previously so many of us, especially, you know, in, in the West, in the UK, especially where I'm from, in the States where you're from, and we're obviously speaking from a totally different country that is our adopted home mm. for the time being. Um, but coming from Western cultures that really prioritize achievement and monetary success and these symbols of how well we're doing the human thing or how well we're adulting or whatever you want to call it, mm, it's yeah. so hard to get out of that until something pulls that structure away or pulls the rug out from under our feet. And I'm not saying here that it's not stressful having suddenly to face a lack of income coming in the rest of it. Um, but what I do want to say is that it seems to be that a lot of the things that we attach meaning to, that we that we orient our lives around, it's like the stars in the sky that we kind of use to navigate our lives and to chart our path forward. You can, you can navigate under a completely different sky and still get to somewhere super interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder sort of with this thing with the goals and with the money and... You know, certainly coming here, I, I, I realized that actually I would come away feeling so much more fulfilled drinking a beer on the cold floor of a plaza with some friends, having spent like mm -hmm. four euros in a chilly afternoon in late spring than I would having spent 75 quid a head in a swanky London, I don't know, gastro bar, whatever it is. And it's mm -hmm. just that kind of reassessment of what is it that really fills you up. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It fills you up. Because it is about, I think space has been a big concept for me the past few years, actually. And I mean, as a yoga teacher, as somebody who is kind of a professional discomforter of others. <laughs> and that is, yeah, well, creating space and holding space and emptying things out and not having to fill them back up again. So when, say, your <laughs> your livelihood dries up, Rather than panicking and rushing to fill it, leaving it to see what needs to fill it. And sitting in uncomfortably empty places. And there's, if anybody is sort of woo-woo like me, there's a quote from A Course in mm. Miracles that says, whatever is empty, grace will fill. And I love that concept to live by because it makes, it turns the idea of lack on its head. It's not that you're lacking in anything, it's that you have space to be filled by something potentially beautiful. And so as a, as a teacher, as um, somebody who does advise others on some tricky issues like climate change or racial injustice, it is kind of about holding space for others to be uncomfortable, to find new solutions, to be innovative, to meet themselves. And I think that's a concept that has really, really been embodied for me throughout this mm. pandemic because it was so quiet. I literally lived in my bedroom for the past 10 months. I'm still <laughs> there, kind of. And it stripped away the things that I used to fill mm. emptiness, to fill pauses. And it's translated into things like I now get people paying attention to the pause between the inhale and the exhale as they sit in meditation. So I think the concept of space and emptiness is a beautiful one. And it also relates to systems breakdown. You know, when you think of but what's the world going to look like mm. instead? We don't know yet, but that's kind of the beauty, the suspense, <laughs> the mystery, the what's coming next. It's it's kind of beautiful if you think of it as like, oh my gosh, what's behind curtain number two? <laughs> we don't know, but it's going to be interesting. You know, don't be anxious. Of course you're anxious. Change is scary. We're hardwired to resist it, but, but it's going to be interesting. And if we kind of, uh, we rolled through 2020, we're still here. We can make it through whatever happens next. And it's nice to have that track record. I think there's less to be afraid of because we've been there. A lot of us have seen our darkest sides. A lot of us have seen the darkest sides of society just watching the news. But yeah, I, I have a great sense of optimism about all of this while having my own anxieties. I'm curious to go into two directions. One of them is around um, the curtain number two idea and like what we project might be behind it and how important visualizing 
alternatives that are exciting and creative is, is going to be, yeah, how important that is to be able to do that. And the other, which maybe let's tackle first before we go to the visioning, um, this anxiety and then the capacity to sit with emptiness, to sit with the space that's there. Coupling that with a practical side, say, okay, well, at what point does one step in and say, I need to pay my bills next month? And how does that dance? Because it's sort of this this idea between mm-hmm. the the numinous, the, the the mythical life, the sacred and in the sort of subterranean forest of our imaginations, which is extremely rich. It gives us a sense of solace and it can be very nourishing to spend time there. Mm. And I think that becomes more available when we have the space to access it and less distraction. At the same time, there's this kind of relationship with the upper world, this world, where we have to, you know, make sure that we take care of our health and we have a roof over our heads if that's how we're choosing to live. How do you find that dance between the holding the space and then the taking care of practical things like finding the finances to come in to ensure your your, your safety? Mm, I like that you described it as a dance. That's how I've been describing <laughs> it to people. But I found it interesting you went from diving deep to coming up to the surface. I term it and think of it more as how do we live consciously and transcendently while having our feet mm, on the ground? I like that. And I have a friend who really pointed this out recently about self-care and the opposite of self-abandonment is about having a savings account. It is about making sure that your needs are met and being able to be in service to the world requires you to take care of yourself. Mm. So it's not that we have to abandon the practical in order to be conscious. It's about being conscious with your eyes wide open. It's about being conscious with a safety net You know, that whole idea of all the cliches, all the sayings about take care of your own oxygen mask first. I cannot truly serve society and be innovative and challenging if I don't have enough food Mm -hmm. to eat. You know, it's taking care of basic needs and the fact that I am having a human experience in this life. Even if I may be connected to something innovative and visionary and woo-woo. You know, I use that term a lot about sort of being in... An inner explorer, you know, really looking into my spiritual side. So I think that's where that's where we all need to seek to be. And for example, this is the year that I know it's time to get back to work. I'm not even sure what all of that work is, but I'm ready to do it. I had a couple years of, you could call it ennui. I might call it a little bit of low-grade depression about my career and being like, I have been working for almost 18 years to fix systems. And now I I believe that they are the wrong systems in the first place. So what do I do? Mm. So I really hit pause for a couple of years because it didn't make sense to pursue the same kind of work in the same kind of way because it just didn't align with me anymore. Mm. So it's time to get back to work and I'm waiting for the right things to come to me. And they are starting to. While at the same time then also feeding that visionary side. And so, for example, I ended well, I ended 2020 having a six-day silent meditation mm. retreat. And the second to last day, I just had this, I just knew with every fiber of my being that I needed to commit to meditating every day of 2021 to just see how my world changed and to see how my life changed. And I, being a behavior change specialist, know that you are 65% more likely to follow through with a commitment if you have people with you on the journey. So I set up a meditation group. Well, now we've got 20 incredible people around the world who I know. About a third to maybe a quarter of them are actually meditation teachers. Mm. So in some form or other, they they teach it either as yoga teachers or as actually just meditation teachers. And the others involved are a real range of people I know who are either very committed to their meditation and just wanted to deepen their practice and maybe have a longer session every day or people who are They've dabbled with it and they just really wanted to get committed, but they were all in. So it's about creating this community of people who actually, it's quite quite self-serving if you think about it, support me <laughs> in my ambition to meditate for at least 30 minutes a day for an entire year. And as one of my friends said, 365 days is a lot mm-hmm. of days. Yes, yes it is, but I'm looking forward to seeing. I've always been a very practical person. I've always worked very hard, but what happens when I take an entire year to just drop into myself every day for at least Mm. 30 minutes, how will that change who I am in the world? How will that change that dance of being connected to my higher self, if you want to call it that, connected to the collective energy out there? 
but also ready to get back to work and focused on the practical and focused on how can I serve society? How can I create projects that actually help us to get to this stage that we need to get to of figuring out how to survive through massively and rapidly accelerating climate change and environmental degradation and social breakdown and racial injustice. So I can't answer that yet. But ask me in a year and I will be able to tell you what a year of daily meditation mm. has done. That sounds like a wonderful project to commit to. <laughs> so far, so good. We're how many days in? <laughs> 11 days in. And it's been, there are moments when, if, if anybody else listening to this meditates regularly, you know it's something that, it's called a practice for a reason. You go back to it whether it's good or not. And let's start what I'm about to say with, I hate muesli. So some days it's like eating dry muesli because it's good for you. And then there are days when it's just like, it blows my mind. And I've had 10, no, nine days of eat your muesli meditations. And yesterday I just had this this session that like I cried and things came up and I just knew things I needed to know and then today it was back to muesli so <laughs> you know it's just sort of it, it's that is life that is the rhythm of life of trying to find that moment where something is amazing something is magical something transcends and then the rest of it we live with our feet on the ground so rather than trying to escape those moments you just show up and you eat your damn muesli yeah I of swear. course <laughs> Okay, eat goddamn muesli. <laughs> muesli and magic, you heard it here first. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, exactly. It's eat your goddamn muesli, and then some days you have just that moment of splendor where you're just like, I am somewhere different, and I don't know where I am, but it's wonderful. <laughs> and then the next day it's back to muesli. So that's life, mm. right? So given a lot of the challenges that you just mentioned, you know, all the issues around uh, sustainability and the climate, biodiversity loss, um, the problems with packaging that we have, with food waste. With, with your work and your experience in a lot of these domains, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen people face and overcome? Oh, man. It's always easy to go to the examples of, you know, visiting mm. tea farmers in Kenya or visiting craft producers in Malawi where, you know, there are people who are so poor that they don't own any land. They can't be farmers. So what they do is they gather offcuts of things and sit under a tree and weave baskets or, you know, seeing people just living in sheer joy when they seem to have nothing is a lesson in not even overcoming, but just being rather than being about what you have, what you do, what you're able to influence even. Mm. But then, you know, sort of drawing it to our very wealthy Western world in which we navigate and live and, and enjoy a lot of beautiful privileges and things. I've done a lot of work on behavior change and just seeing people wake up to how connected they truly are to everyone and everything. You know, the idea that we all truly exist within an ecosystem. And therefore, thinking about your food waste, thinking about what you do with your used packaging, if you recycle or not, um, what you do about your, your language in speaking about people who aren't like you, whether they're a different color or a different gender identity or something you've never heard of yet. Just watching people be brave and be willing to get things wrong so that they can get mm. them right. I think that has really come out for me in the past even six months, I just have so much respect for people who never would have thought of themselves as activists or environmentalists or any of the ists. And just being beautifully human and beautifully connected. And I, I'm not sure if that answered your question or not, but I kind of got <laughs> on a roll there. There's so many different ways to answer that question. And I think I'm curious to hear the different layers of that. So that's one of the layers to speak to. And I'm thinking also in um, one of the conversations we had a while ago about your your experience with, it was a particular company that does food on a massive scale. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, and very few people who do the kind of work that you do that talks with um, passion to people who are creating change on the ground also get to see things from the inside of the belly of the beast. And so I'm I'm also interested to mm. weave some of that insight in. What was your experience like? What did you learn about how you can change or if you can change uh, such big 
organizations? Well, oh, man, there are so many layers to that question, Natalie. <laughs> okay, so I worked for the world's biggest food company. I won't name check them. People can figure this one out if they just look at my LinkedIn or whatever. But for one thing, the thing that the lasting impression that I had was that it's filled with people who really care about their jobs and the world and still some of the best, finest colleagues I have ever had in my career. People who understood the potential impact and the responsibility of working for the world's biggest food company. It is like working for a super tanker. Mm. It felt like that. My perception of that from the outside was unchanged by having been in the super tanker itself. It's a machine that could just float on and on and on for years without actually anyone doing anything. But also that if you can change the direction of that super tanker, even a millimeter, within a few you know miles to beat the metaphor to death, you've changed the world for thousands of people in their supply chain, thousands of people who buy and consume their products. And so that vision was what really drew me to the role because they came and found me. And just thinking, wow, if I can have any impact whatsoever, I can have a real mm. impact on the lives of people in the developing world to, you know, grow the products that go into the things that this company makes. And I guess, yeah, on one hand, you realize it's a machine. It's a super tanker that no one person can totally transform the entire machine. But I also realize that machines are made up of parts and each of those parts can have an impact. And I I sort of left thinking, okay, I don't think that my my future and my personality fit best in a big multinational corporate because I just need a little more room to navigate and work quickly. And that's just my speed and my personality and my, my drive. But I left realizing that there are a lot of good people within a lot of companies. There are a lot of people seeking to do some really good things. And there are actually some really good things happening on the ground. And also, I would encourage anybody who has a thing where their knee-jerk reaction, sorry to call it that, is to think big is bad, to, to rethink that. Because big can also mean quite influential, quite powerful. And if you really want to change the world fast, the companies, <laughs> those with money and power, have the ability to change things quickly. And in order to influence that change, you have to be willing to work with them. Also, they're not moral entities. I, you know, Corporations will do whatever they're allowed to do. They're not immoral. They're not evil. They just do what they're allowed to do. They've been set up in a system which sees natural resources as resources. It sees humans as resources. Mm -hmm. And they're just set up to meet certain targets, work a certain way. So... Yes, I disagree with a system that treats humans as resources and the planet as a resource rather than an ecosystem that we're all connected to. But at the same time, it's not about beating a certain company to death because it just does what corporates do. If you have a problem with it, look at the system that it comes from and change mm. the system. It's interesting what you mentioned there about the language as well that we use because, you know, we talk about these systems as though they're these things that sit separate from us. Um, and at a certain point, mm. they feel as though they are so much larger than us that they are separate. But of course the culture in which we seed these ideas that then become these massive tankers, these corporates, that is within our power to change. Do you think that there are more conversations happening at a senior level about ways in which companies exist in the world? I know that one of the things that I've spoken about a few times on this on this podcast, especially this, this season, is around the shift in conversation away from corporate social responsibility and towards what appears to be a bit more of a comprehensive approach of environmental, social and corporate governance, um, where mm -hmm. there is, you know, input, which is the effort and the initiatives and the protocols, whatever. And there's also an output, which is, okay, well, how does this impact carbon emissions? How does this change the way in which we are getting rid of waste or whatever it might be? Do you see a difference from leaders in terms of what they're now willing to discuss? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's been a real shift in mindset. And that might be because the leaders who are currently at the top of, you know, everything are, they've come up in this a bit more. You know, they're younger. Um, they might personally value this stuff more, but also it's just common sense because if you don't take care of your supply chain, you don't have one. If you don't invest in your farmers and communities and people, you don't have a supply chain and you can't actually 
you know, <laughs> you don't have a very good balance sheet at the end of that. So I think there's a blend of necessity because the pressures have grown and it's no longer a nice to have. Mm. You know, sustainability budgets always used to be the first to go and now it's embedded in a lot of leadership mindsets, in a lot of training, in a lot of, you know, even business schools are starting to teach things differently. So it's become more of the skill set. But also, I th I think it's just that, like I said earlier, the hand has been forced. And now leaders and, and managers and sort of C-suite have to have, in order to mitigate risk, they have to have an understanding of sustainability as, I call it sustainability 2.0, because, you know, past definitions have really majored on either environmental impact or economic impact. That's how even dictionaries define sustainability. And side note, um, a colleague and I have launched a petition on change.org to get the major dictionaries to, to update their definition of sustainability to be accurate, to talk about sustainable, well, it's about economy, it's about environment, and it's about society. So if anybody wants mm. to look at that, maybe we can put Please, that in the show notes. Yeah, because it's sort of, all right, sign our petition because it doesn't help to have those conversations when the language mm -hmm. is not accurate. You know, when people say sustainability, or I say I work in sustainability, and people just always conclude that that means environmental things. And yes, while that's part of it, that's actually not what I focus on most of the time. And that's maddening, but it's also not useful for conversations and for mm -hmm. strategy. So... You know, we talked about language being important. This one's super important. But back to your point, your question, yeah, I think those conversations are being had. I think they're being had more often, and those who aren't having them are going to be left behind very shortly, even if they, they haven't already been. And this is probably a perfect time to talk about the book that you recently published, your first book, which is called Communicating Social and Environmental Issues Effectively, which came out in July 2020. And actually, I think the timing couldn't have been more perfect just because we're in the midst of a <laughs> pandemic. A lot of it connected to our relationship with and exploitation of environmental resources, as we call them, or the, the habitat of other beings. And alongside the pandemic and the climate and biodiversity and food security issues that we face, it feels to me that this topic that you're exploring in this book has become more pressing than ever. Like we need to make significant changes on all levels to how we live. And so for those of us who are wishing to take the first step on this journey, because I know that sounds really scary when I just <laughs> rattle everything off like that. Can you outline a few of the key principles that you wrote about in your book? Yeah, and I the timing could not have been better, as you observed. And that was an interesting one because it was the last of a series that was published by the, the PR Communications Association in the UK. And it had been delayed a bit just for various issues or, you know, various things going on. And, and I needed to take a bit of time off. By the time it came out, like you said, the timing could not have been better. And over the course of writing it, I was able to change the language I was using. You know, I could talk about climate emergency mm. and I didn't have to labor the point that people should take this seriously. The news and the headlines had made those points for me. So what I did was created a really practical framework. It's a handbook. It's a small-ish book. It's, it's intended to be a super practical book that communicators and leaders could even take into a team meeting with them. And each chapter is geared to address a step of the process of planning great communications around social and environmental issues. And I on purpose called it social and environmental issues rather than sustainability because of my aforementioned bugbear about the definition of sustainability being misconstrued. So what I had seen um, as somebody who I've, I've never considered myself a communications person, I'm a strategist and I have had some communications jobs. But then as I started to get into the communications agency world, sort of, you know, in my mid-30s, well into my career, I noticed a worrying trend, and that was there were more and more briefs coming to agencies by clients who wanted them to help them with their communications about environmental and social issues. And the agencies, people in agencies were communication specialists, not sustainability specialists. So often they would take on these briefs and not truly understand what they were talking about, but also not really see themselves as really important strategic gatekeepers and challengers. So they would end up creating marketing campaigns or just communications in general, talking about the environmental and social work of certain organizations. And it just mm. wasn't true. So they were the ones who were actually kind of, well, I'm just going to say it, guilty of creating greenwash or we call purpose wash. So basically, 
saying things that just simply wouldn't stand up to scrutiny. And that, of course, the public are so much more savvy than they were, and increasingly more so. The age of social media means that when they spot hypocrisy, it gets called out super quickly, and it can be super damaging to mm. reputation. So at this stage, if you don't want to spend all of your time as a comms person crisis managing after you say something about social or environmental credentials, you need to understand what you're doing. So it came out at a time when I think that's super well accepted, and it's just meant to be a really practical set of guidelines. It's, you know, just a few chapters, eight, nine... Mm. Don't ask me. It's been, I so forgot about writing it. I was like, I've, ri I've written, you've written books, you know. You're just like, I'm done. I'm not going to think about that for about another year. But yeah, it's sort of, it covers everything from building the business case, if you still have to do that, which hopefully you don't, but you might, through to, you know, really deep diving into stakeholder mapping, which sounds basic and it's sort of comms 101, but I come from a behavior change and a campaigns background. And it is so super important in both of those to truly, truly, truly understand your stakeholders, but also consider internal and external. And I saw a lot of people just kind of skipping that step or glossing over it. So it's something that I emphasize quite a lot in my book of just understand the ecosystem in which you're navigating. And being really thorough in your understanding, you know, creating pen portraits or avatars or whatever you want to call them, which is actually quite fun, but really treating it as an exhaustive, thorough process. And by the end of it, you've created a pre-mortem, which I love that term. It's basically like, think, what could possibly go wrong? What would, what would kill yeah. this? And then anticipating that and then problem solving before it's ever an issue. And then you come up with a much stronger plan, a much more robust understanding of what could go wrong and then make sure it doesn't happen. So yeah, that's that's the book, more or less. And it's I'm quite proud of it because I, I'm just like, yes, I hope this is of use to the world. That's why I wrote it. I want it to be something that people feel empowered by and like they're able to tackle something that maybe they don't know much about or maybe they feel a great sense of personal, mm, I guess, alignment with their values because you know i think as we've spent this year working from our homes the alignment of the personal and the professional has never been more intensely mm. obvious and so part of what i wove in something that i'm really working and focusing on more and want to write future books on is being yourself in your work valuing yourself as a human with values and instincts because those are what make you a good communicator and also they're really important at this incredibly intense and crucial time in human history we're in. We need people who actually are focused on listening to their values and bringing those to assessing risk and how they communicate and what kind of jobs they take on. So all of that's woven in there. But yeah, you know, it's something I'm really proud of and I would obviously love for people to buy it and read it, but it's not about ever getting rich from it. It's a business book. That doesn't happen. But I really want people to benefit mm. from it. It sounds like a very useful, practical tool. And I think that's one of the things that is so, so vital and that actually can really shift the way in which people are able to affect change. Because as much as we like to be able to have these conversations, and I love the investigative, contemplative side of things, having these sorts of conversations. But I think for those of us who are in the position where we feel moved to take action, we feel moved to take an approach which is going to, you know, have real impact in certain domains, that kind of book, that kind of tool is going to be absolutely invaluable. Mm. And so I'm kind of curious to ask a bit more around your passion for ensuring that things like systems and habits and policy approaches have a positive impact because your your field of play let's say is actually really broad and one of the things that I know that you focus on is work with women and children in particular can you talk a bit about that and what you've found to be inspiring in terms of shifting things for people who are women and children who need perhaps more support because often they're the groups that get most overlooked Oh, man, this is such a broad topic. <laughs> well, I think what really struck me um, was one of my, well, I still look back on it as, with great fondness, as an incredible role that really shaped who I am professionally and also brought into really sharp focus who I am personally and how I want to bring that to my work. And that was, I was the first director of the Scottish mm -hmm. Fair Trade Forum. So, 
young, in my late 20s, I got hired to run this campaign in Scotland to make it a fair trade nation. And then it ended up being this incredible role where I got to set up an NGO and work with all of the major um, international development NGOs like Oxfam. It was like having my, my face just pointed at and con constantly considering the impact of how we live on women and children in developing countries in particular. But also understanding a lot of the research that goes into, you know, humanitarian aid or international development stuff and just understanding that if you want to change the world, educate women. And it impacts how they live. It gives them more of a voice in their communities. It empowers them to choose when they start to have mm. children. You know, it affects everything. If you educate women, you're going to change the world because then they educate their children and they start businesses. And it has this incredible, it just has this incredible ripple effect. And I mean, I've, I, I am a woman, so I have skin in the game here because I also understand coming from quite a, this is really related to my background, quite a conservative Christian family who didn't really think that women needed to be educated. My brothers had to have an education because they were going to go be the breadwinners. And it, it wasn't through any sort of malice of my parents. They just were being very practical and like, okay, the man is the head of the house. He needs to have a good education to have a good job. And women, you know, eh, mm. optional. Be smart, be intelligent, but you don't need to necessarily have a degree. So I empowered myself. I took the values that my parents gave me, and I give them great credit for that. They taught me that my life is about much more than just me. But then I, I did go and get an education. I did, you know, work hard to get good grades and study, and I enjoyed my studies. And then I went on and got a master's degree so that I could do more in the world. So, I mean, I'm sort of living proof from a Western society that if you educate a woman... Just try and stop me. <laughs> just try and stop me. Um, and and I see that as just like, wow, I had access to so much privilege. I mean, I come from a fairly you know, humble background. I'm from Wyoming, which is a state, number one, most people have never heard of. And B, just from a very, you know, sort of not working class family. My dad was a teacher, but my mom stayed home with us and, and grew up fairly poor. And yet poor in a place like the United States is... Mm, it's all relative, right? So I got scholarships and I had a great education. I was homeschooled, by the way, if that's of interest to people. I had a fantastic wow. education. I got to pursue things that I really loved. I got to learn a lot of really interesting things. And I didn't have to sort of fit into a school system. You know, I always did standardized tests every year and did very well, but I got to pursue what I was interested in. Mm. And then from that was able to kind of leverage that privilege into an education and then turn that into access to great jobs. And, you know, sort of the idea of self-made man or self-made anything I, I have a real issue with because it usually fails to recognize the sort of embedded yeah, yeah. basic privilege you come from. And so I would not dare to say I'm self-made, but I was able to leverage the privileges mm. that I was born into, that I was given to hopefully get an education and do something for other people. So, yeah, I want to make sure that I pass that on to others. And I do know that, yeah, it's, it's women and children not only has the most impact, because I'm kind of obsessed with <laughs> impact, measurable, hopefully, um, but also just it really lights me up. I think that's sort of the intangible thing of it just, it gets me out of bed. You know, like circular economy and zero waste stuff, super important, really doesn't get me out of bed. So I no longer take on projects or even consider things that don't have uh, at least an indirect, very traceable impact on women and children, ideally in the developing world. But yeah, it has to have that somewhere in it, ideally mm. at the heart of it. Uh, so you have to stop saying yes to just sheerly environmental mm. briefs. Yeah, because it doesn't acknowledge the interconnectedness of the whole system. And I think one of these things, one of the mm. one of the issues that we can fall prey to is this idea that we have to fix everything all at once and do everything. It's overwhelming. Yeah, it's therein yeah. lies burnout, basically. <laughs> it's the fast track to burnout and uselessness because you can't do it all. Yeah, it's something where you literally just become suspended in inaction because the weight of the enormity of the task is just too great. And so I think this idea of really zoning into the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, there's kind of philosophy in Japanese culture called ikigai, which is about the purpose for your waking up, mm. the thing that you want to do. And I think that 
that orientation, even if it's something which may be small compared to the enormity of problems that you face, if that's where you're most excited to make change happen, then go for it. It's like that's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And listening to yourself, because I think so often we are just so disconnected from actually what mm. we feel. And for me, I know that I'm on the right track because I have this visceral physical reaction. I can feel it rising from my lower belly all the way up to my chest. And I'm like, ah, I have that feeling. This is the right thing. And that involves maybe being quiet and listening. It involves maybe having a some sort of a, con a contemplative practice that might be sitting on a meditation cushion. It might be going for a run. It might be getting a massage. But learning to just really start to listen to yourself and what feels good and what doesn't and and getting clear on what your guiding principles are what your values are because kind of to your point again you can't do everything but you can do something and every one of us has our own unique fingerprints and so having your own unique impact on this world in this life that we've each been given it can be beautifully unique but get to know who you are and what you value and what lights you up or what makes you angry. Pay attention to what makes you angry because anger is productive. Anger is beautiful. I love <laughs> anger. Anger tells me when I'm on the right track. Anger makes me productive. I get shit done <laughs> when I'm angry. So, like, what makes you angry? What makes you happy? What gets you out of bed? Know the answers to those questions and you'll know what your mission is in life. Don't try to do it all. Do your mission. I love that. So in that vein then, um, and because you're giving some wonderful, very practical tips, which I love because I'm a very practical person. Um, <laughs> if you were going to yes. offer people uh, a book that you might recommend that everybody reads, what book would that be and why? Oh, man. Well, I'm just going to go with the last book I read, go which is it. Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Ah, and it's, yeah. oh, if you haven't read it, I bought it for so many people and then I finally borrowed a friend's copy and read it myself. But it's about... I mean, it's particularly for women because it's about how we've been socialized to be nice, to be kind, to be polite. And niceness is a great tool of social oppression, but that's another conversation. Mm -hmm. But it's about being untamable, being, as she says it, I'm a goddamn cheetah. <laughs> I'm not here to be caged. I'm not here to be looked at. I'm not here to be pretty. I am here to be real, to feel my emotions, to live my truth to know what lights me up, to know what makes me angry, and then to act on those things. So yeah, if you haven't heard of Glennon Doyle, get on it, because she's incredible. She's on social media. Um, and her books are incredible, but this this most recent one, Untamed, is absolutely amazing. It's, it's a quick read because you won't be able to put it down. Brilliant. Great, great, great. Okay. And then from that practical recommendation to something a little bit more I guess, matter in some ways. What would you like your legacy to be? Oh, man. It's funny because I have two inclinations here. Mm. Back to that, I have a bias toward action thing. So I'm like, oh, I want to have impact. But also um, something that now my friends slash yoga students, because many of my friends are now my yoga students, laugh at me is pause. I would like to be known for calling people to pause and listen. Because... It's not all about action. It's not all about impact. It's not, not all about frantic activity or anger. It's about pause and feel. Pause and breathe. Pause and know if you're on the right course. So I would like to be known as someone who had impact on the world, but was able to pause. Mm. That's beautiful. And then what question would you like people to dwell with at this moment? Hmm. What are the bits of yourself that you have forgotten? And how can you bring those to the world this year? Mm. I love that. That's actually really touched me. Amazing. I hope it touches other people because that, yeah, that came from, I can feel it in that all over body feeling. Just like, yeah. I have a little tingle. I have a little emotion in my eyes. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that one. That's, that was unexpected. Thank you. Uh -huh, the forgotten parts. Well, I guess that's it. It's like, there is not work to be done on yourself. You are perfect as you are today. So find those forgotten bits of yourself, those bits of yourself that maybe you're ashamed of or not comfortable bringing to the world or you're a bit shy about. And those bits of you are perfect too. 
bring them out. If we all do that, what's the world going to be like? Radical party! <laughs> yeah, radical party! <laughs> be yourself! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be wild in the most rich and fabulous ways, I swear. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? My life has gone crazy since I started living more in alignment with, like, <laughs> what would happen if I got out of my own way? Yeah. What would yeah. happen if I let people see the bits of me that I'm actually really proud of but think that, oh, no, I can't be proud of that. I have mm. to be nice and make people comfortable and not be this big. And my life has gone a bit crazy in, <laughs> in a good way. I'm just like, whoa, you're asking me to do what? You're going to pay me to do what? You're just, what? Yeah. <laughs> you're paying me to talk about myself? What? <laughs> crazy bring it on i say i agree but yeah i can't wait for this crazy <laughs> year that's coming up whatever it holds because now we know we can do hard things another yeah. glennon doyle saying we yeah. can do hard things mm. yeah that is absolutely true so then to, to bring this conversation to a close if i were to ask you what vision of the world you're holding for others at this moment how would you begin to answer that hmm. it's one in which more and more and more of us face the discomfort of our own shadows the things that we repress the things that we don't want to face and that pop out as brutality or oppression or numbness and harm others and simply by doing our own work by looking at ourselves by feeling ourselves the world will become a better place Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating or review as it helps to reach new ears. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.